Welcome back to Real Talk Unleashed, a real ass veterinary podcast for real ass veterinary professionals. My name is Caitlin Sharapova. And I'm Dr. Tasha Stark. I'm Michelle Pavahouse. And today we have a very exciting guest, Paul Diaz, who has been shaking things up in the veterinary community. Paul Diaz is a United States Marine Corps veteran and CEO of Offer First, with over 21 years of experience leading recruiting teams in various industries. In his most recent corporate position, Paul was the vice president of DVM Recruiting for one of the nation's largest veterinary employers, where he led his team to over 1,100 DVM hires in just two years. He's the leading advocate for ending the veterinary non-compete, an effort which has earned him an overwhelming amount of support from the veterinary community to include nominations for the AVMA's Advocacy Award. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. We are all really excited to chat with you, so we will get right into it. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Paul. So I think a good place to start would be how we ran into you at the MX. So it's so funny because I wasn't super active on LinkedIn. It's not my favorite place to be, but I've been forcing myself to try to get more active on LinkedIn for the podcast and for the, you know, the other businesses that I help run. And we had gotten to VMX. We were exhausted from a day of travel. I was laying in the bed at the hotel and I was scrolling through LinkedIn and I saw one of your posts and read it. And I was immediately like, this is so cool. Like I was so thrilled to see that somebody else was standing up to the corporations and was actually tagging them and calling them out and Then Caitlin and I decided to take a break from the booth. Morgan was covering for us at the booth. We we decided to take a break and walk around. And here you come walking down the aisle with your I am Paul Diaz shirt on. And it was just, it was so awesome. (laughs) We made it pretty easy for you to find me. Definitely. And you were talking to somebody else and I told Caitlin, I was like, oh my God, this is the guy that I was telling you about. But yeah, we were so thrilled that we ran into you. And immediately I was like, we need to have this guy on the podcast. So Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in being a disruptor of the veterinary industry? Uh, Well, it kind of fell into my lap. Um, So when I started my consulting company, uh, that was the first time my job required me to have so many individual or one-on-one conversations with veterinarians. So in the corporate world, I was the vice president, so I didn't have those conversations. My team did. So if there were any stories about non-competes, they just never bubbled up from my desk. And to be even more candid, I spent the majority of my corporate career in California. So non-competes were just never, they were just never on my radar. It wasn't anything I ever even thought about. Um, And then you fast forward and start my own company and I'm speaking to all these veterinarians on a daily basis and the stories started popping up. And you know, the first one went by, the second one went by, and then I come around to the third story and I start thinking about, wait a second, there's something going on here, right? I'm starting to identify this trend regarding the non-compete and this impact that it's having on these veterinarians. And everybody's story was so unique. And then come the end of, uh, what was it, 2021, where um, one of the veterinarians I had placed reached out or at least introduced me to another veterinarian who was having a difficult time with a non-compete. So I ended up uh, having that conversation with her and her story was just, it was by far the most tragic of all the stories I had heard up to that point. And um, I remember vividly, I'll, I'll never forget this. I asked her how she was coping with everything at this time, right? In this moment, how are you coping with this work environment that is clearly extremely toxic for her and you know, everything else that's going on in life. And that's when she said, 
that uh, she just she goes to work every day and does the very best for her patients while she just suffers in silence. And when I heard that, it just broke me. It absolutely broke me. And that was the moment that I knew that somebody had to do something and nobody else was. Nobody was talking about non-competes. Right? Non-competes have existed in the veterinary industry for decades, but nobody talks about them. Um, but that was, you know, that line, I, you know, I'd suffer in silence. That's be, that became the title of that article I wrote on LinkedIn and then Vin picked it up. And, you know, just, just last week, it was the one year anniversary of me writing that. So that's kind of what kicked it all off. That's awesome. So my question is, are you able to tell a little bit more about the, the person, the doctor's story? Um, are you able to go into detail about, you know, what her non-compete was and what the terms were, that sort of thing? I mean, you, were, you talked a little bit about her story and just what prompted you to kind of get into dealing with non-competes and fighting the whole idea of non-competes. But what was her her story? Yeah, so we call her Sarah. All right, that was the pseudonym I came up with because she wanted she wanted to maintain her confidentiality throughout that the the practice owners that ended up helping me save her wanted to maintain their confidentiality because they were getting ready to retire. And, um, and then obviously she wanted to respect the previous owner's um, privacy as well. She didn't want to just have that name thrown in the mud and stuff like that. So I respected all that. Um, but at the end of the day, her story was very similar to um, others I've heard. It was just um, exacerbated by some some factors that nobody could have anticipated, but she was a, I believe if I remember correctly, she was about three years experience, so relatively new veterinarian. You know, she took this first job in in a place where she had family resources, right? So this was kind of a plan, right? I'm gonna, my boyfriend and I, or I think it was a fiance at the time, we're gonna move to this town. His parents are there, my sister's there, right? So they've got the family resources. They can put their roots down, start a family, and you know, the, the typical, you know, American dream, right? She remembered vividly how well she was treated through the screening process, right? The interview process was great. They rolled out the red carpet for her, made all kinds of promises, and she was just over the moon about getting her first job, right? Well, it didn't take long before she realized that some of those promises weren't being kept, right? She she had to fight for the mentorship that was promised for her, right? It became like a struggle. And every single time she asked about it, they were just way too busy and something else was going on, right? There was always a reason why it couldn't happen. She wasn't getting challenging cases, right? Those cases were going to the much senior doctors. If there was an opportunity for her to observe, I mean, that, that was few and far between. But she was just doing... She was doing everything she thought she needed to do, um, except for really skylighting herself, um, at least in her first couple of years. And then it just became, you know, the work schedule that she was promised. Hey, we can't do that anymore. Oh, and we know we told you you can have these days off, but you can't do that anymore. And it just, it was one thing after the next. And finally, she raises her hand and says, hey, you know, what about all those things you guys promised me when, when you hired me? Like, I still haven't gotten mentorship. I still haven't gotten this. You changed my work schedule. And the second she did that, the second she stood up for herself, everything just got a hundred times worse. They just marginalized her. But what were her choices? She knew she had signed a non-compete. She was talking to her friend about it, a friend who I had helped previously. And she felt she was stuck. You know, relocation was not an option. This was a, her community. 
right? This is where her family was and her extended family. And this is where she wanted to raise her kids and stuff like that, right? That's where she wanted to have the family. So the thought of relocating was, it wasn't an option. Um, not practicing, that wasn't an option. So she just continued to do what she had to do and she kept her head down. So when I finally got a hold of her, we, we started talking about it and I better understood what was going on. I immediately started looking for a new place for her to work. It was going to be difficult because the non-compete covered most of the city she was in, right, which is relatively standard. But I did find a practice owner um, who was hiring. I explained the situation to him. And he already knew about the culture at this household. So she wasn't the first one this owner has done this to. And because of that, he was willing to help. So the first step that I needed to do was figure out what was going to happen. Like, what, what am I going to have to do to get her out of this non-compete? And part of me already knew because most times the answer is the same. It just comes down to a dollar amount. So I got permission from her to speak to her new or to her current employer. And I did just that you know, in an attempt to find a common middle ground. And it really didn't take long. I mean, he didn't hide his cards at all. It was all about money. So at that point, I just needed to negotiate an amount. I can't remember what we started at, but I was able to get it to $10,000, right? Which it's not reasonable in this case, but for the other practice owner, that, that was an amount they were comfortable with, you know, to pay that, then to pay, you know, obviously her, her bonuses and stuff like that. On top of my fee, that's something that this private practice just wasn't going to be able to do. So I recognized that. I, I had a feeling it was coming and I was already prepared. I knew I wasn't going to make them pay my fee. So I waived my fee. They ended up hiring her. They paid the previous owner 10 grand and never heard from him again. And she's still there today and she's happy as can be. Good for her. Yeah. And that was her story. That's, that's incredible. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the, is it 6,000 uh, people who signed your petitions to end non-compete and then you ended yeah. up speaking to the FTC? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's over 6,000 now. And I should probably promote it a little more, but it's, uh, you know, the grassroots effort, just from people talking about it, has gotten more signatures than anything I could have done. But yeah, the um, that FTC call was really interesting. You know, my involvement with them, as soon as I knew that that rule was coming out, I've done everything I can to help promote it so we can get as many comments on that rule. And the petition... Yeah, that petition I started in an effort just to raise awareness because I wanted more than just the, the veterinary community to know about it. Like the petition, there's a lot of pet parents on that petition who didn't understand what the non-compete meant and didn't understand how it impacted them. And then after reading what I wrote for the petition and then reaching out to me, I've had several several pet parents just reaching out to me like, hey, can you explain like what's going on with this? Like, I love my veterinarian. What is this something that can happen to, to her? And I'm like, yeah, it absolutely can. So, you know, it was my way of educating a much more broader audience. And then the call with the FTC, I thought that was interesting because they only gave you two minutes. And I'm telling you, I rehearsed that thing like a hundred times. And I know I was at, at my worst, it was a minute and 52 seconds. So I didn't get to say my very last sentence, which was kind of like my mic drop moment, but I guess I'll have to save it for something else. Uh, but I still think I got the point across. Gosh, the, the, the feedback I got from that call was just incredible. It was overwhelming. This the veterinary community has just been so great to me um, since I started this advocacy. And, um, you know, I, I just don't have the words to express how much I appreciate those folks. And then 
gosh, I even have people from other industries calling me after and messaging me after that FTC call. So I think I got that point across. That's awesome. Absolutely. And I think, you know, recently the president addressed non-competes in his State of the Union. Um, so what were your thoughts on that? Well, I, it's encouraging. It absolutely is. Now, Here's the thing, I'm going to say something that may may seem a little counterintuitive, but I want to be really clear about this. I am happy. I am happy that the government is stepping in and attempting to do something. And I'm confident that they're going to make it happen. And I believe that they will make this happen. It's just a matter of time. Now, my advocacy started with the intent to empower and educate veterinarians in the industry because what i wanted to see was the veterinarian standing up the veterinary student standing up and saying hey you know what we're not going to engage with any employers that require non-competes on our campus right i'm i'm i can't wait for the first school to say that once the first school does the rest of them will follow i do believe the students are going to have a significant impact on this but again the veterinarian the veterinary population itself that was my goal was to empower them to get them to say Hey, I'm not signing non-competes ever again. Oh, and by the way, I currently work at an employer who requires it, and I'm going to do something internally from the inside to change this perspective as well, right? Now, if the government comes in and ends non-competes before I'm able to influence or we are able to influence enough veterinarians to end it on their own, I will consider my efforts a failure, okay? But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be happy about the results. Either way it happens, as long as it happens, I will be I'll be happy and I'll be supportive of that. But again, my intent was to get to empower the veterinarians to make this change so that they can understand exactly how much power they have to influence this entire industry. I mean, they are literally the most powerful people in this industry. I just don't think they realize it yet. That's what I'm trying to do. So um, I had to fight a non-compete. Um, a practice sued me when I left to go. So I, you know, I had to pay the ten thousand dollars because it was a money issue. You know, a power move, basically. But now that I'm a business owner, Paul, my question for you is: How do I protect my business outside of non-compete? I mean, I have more of like a non-solicitation sort of thing. But you know, I think about the amount of money that you invested invest into clientele and you know what about the doctor that wants to leave that really does want to take a, a significant amount of your clientele or just do you just feel like it's free market it'll kind of work itself out my husband is an attorney and or was an attorney he's currently a sitting judge when he was in private practice he left a practice and immediately opened up his own brick and mortar right next door and there's no restrictions attorneys are not allowed to have non-competes and, you know, I imagine it did affect the, the other attorney's business somewhat, but how do you propose business owners protect themselves if non-competes are no longer a thing? That's a great question, Dr. Stark. So to answer your question, and this is, this is one of the um, defensive argument points that I get relative, at first I got it a lot, right, until I was started dismantling them, then all the detractors went away for a little bit and I just had one pop up yesterday or actually last Friday. That was exciting. I got to handle that one too. But the bottom line is, is that the non-compete, it doesn't protect your business. This is a philosophy. This is like one of those urban legends that I think business owners have uh, have latched on to. They think that the non-compete is going to protect their business. And what 
what you're really trying to say is how do I protect the value of my business? The thing about it is, is that you have all kinds of protections as a business owner. The government affords you all kinds of protections, right? So you've got your non-solicits, you got your non-disparagements, you got trademarks, copyrights, patents, NDAs, confidentiality agreements, all kinds of tools at your disposal to essentially protect your IP, your intellectual property. But to protect the value of your business, let's think of veterinary practice. The value of any practice is only worth the brick and mortar used to build it. The incentive, right? What increases the value is having selling a hospital that's fully staffed. So the value, the business value is in its people. But everybody talks about protecting my business. What they should be saying is, how do I protect my people? Because that is what increases the value of any business. Now, if you as a business owner fail to create a differentiated client and employee experience, that is on you as the business owner. Because if you didn't build that loyalty with your clients to your brand, and any one person can just leave, and all your clients go with them, that's on the business owner, right? That's the business owner who didn't evolve, didn't take the steps necessary to build that loyalty to their brand. And if you're that business owner and you're relying on the veterinarian, only the veterinarian to establish the relationship with your clients, you failed again. Your clients should feel special from everybody they contact the second they walk through that door. You create that experience. And yes, there's going to be a portion of your clients that like Dr. Diaz, and they're going to go wherever he goes. Well, it's a reasonable distance, right? And everybody uses the example of, hey, somebody's going to leave an open shop right across the street. That's a big fallacy, too. I mean, I can't remember the last time I was in a veterinary clinic and I looked across the street and saw another veterinary clinic. I mean, that happens when I go into McDonald's or Burger King, but I haven't seen that in the veterinary space. And I'm not going to dive into the fundamental practices to open a business, but one of them has to do with that market saturation research that tells you whether or not that business is going to be viable. So, but everybody just, what if they just open another business? Well, the bottom line is anybody can do that. But if you want to protect your business, protect the people first. And this has to do even with the sale of a practice. So many times I've heard about these transactions happening where the staff was surprised. They just, they're like, wait, wait a second. You're selling? Are we just now finding out? That's not how you protect your business. You involve them in the process. Maybe one of them wants to buy it. Give them an opportunity, right? Or even that individual, that high performer. This is a great story. So I had a practice owner ask me, hey, you know what? What happens when one of my high performers decides to go and open a practice across the street? Well, if they were a high performer and you weren't having the conversations with them about their future, that again is your fault because that's an opportunity you missed. Because that high performer, guess what that high performer is gonna do? They're gonna latch on to the advice and the, the mentorship that you provide as the owner. If you tell them, hey, you know what? I know you're gonna open your practice one day. I mean, you're, you're, you're a high performer, you're hugely successful. I want to help you avoid the mistakes that I made. Maybe I will invest in your new practice. So now instead of owning one hospital, I own one and a half. Oh, and guess what else? That new high, that high performing doctor, when they open their own clinic, guess what they're going to do? They're going to bring their friends to work there. So now you've got access to more veterinarians in the community. And now together, you're serving a bigger population of the community and less pet parents are having to wait. I mean, it's a win-win for everybody if you do it the right way. But everybody focuses on, oh, what am I going to lose? Well, if you didn't, if your business model doesn't have steps to evolve and create that client experience, well, then you got a lot to lose, but that's on your own shoulders. The non-compete isn't going to protect that. 
it just doesn't. It actually damages the veterinarian. It's going to damage your reputation, right? When word gets out, and that's going to be the next strategy in this whole knock of teeth business. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it damages your community, right? Because now you're potentially putting a doctor either out of work or they left the community. So you're not feeling good by anybody in that sense. origin of non-competes is in our profession? I mean, there are many professions that don't have them. That's a great question. That's something I've been trying to dive into, but I just haven't been able to peel that onion back far enough. What I can tell you, at least in you know the conversations that I've had about this, for the most part, even the experienced veterinarians who've been in the industry 15 plus years have told me that the non-compete was just always something they thought was part of becoming a doctor. It was just there, you know, all the Previous doctors to them were just like, yeah, you know, you just sign it. It's part of the business, whatever. And over time, veterinarians just became conditioned to accepting it as a normal part of the process. And that, that's one of the key problems that led us to where we are today. Nobody talked about it. Nobody tried to negotiate it out because it's just a standard part of becoming a doctor. But I'm here to say, no, it isn't. So this is also something that we talk about pretty frequently is that, you know, there's a lack of preparation and education in veterinary schools. And, you know, you mentioned this in that if veterinary schools were to take up, you know, ending the non-compete, that would be huge. You know, providing that education that says this is not normal and this is not to your benefit. And I know, Dr. Stark, you've been a big advocate for getting your own alma mater to implement some business education to their students. So I, I graduated Virginia Tech in 04, and we really didn't get a lot of business training. I and mean, we did get one little small course that was like, yeah, you're going to sign a contract. So pretty much like Paul said, I mean, I've been out of school going on 20 years, and it, it's, it was a part, you're exactly right. It was a part of what we were told. It's part of your, your, your contract. I recently just helped a student, a 2022 graduate, who was signing a 30-mile non-compete in New Jersey. And so he literally couldn't even work in New York City, lived in New Jersey. And it was the, the most bizarre non-compete I'd ever seen in my career. Um, I know another veterinarian who's a specialist. She signed a hundred mile non-compete. She literally had to get out of the profession for three years until her non-compete could end. And so, you know, I, it always has been bizarre to me being married to someone who is in a profession that they have them why this was a thing. So, you know, and even with me saying to, you know, my alma mater, I'll pay for an attorney to come down there and talk to the students. I've not gotten, I've, no one said to me, we'll take you up on that offer. They always say, well, we talked about those things, but you must not be talking about it enough if you graduated someone last year who is still signing a 30 mile non-compete and it not you know, bringing up a red flag to him that that was not a good thing. And so if that's one student, I can guarantee you that there's there's more than one. So so some of it too, Paul, you know, it's maybe getting into the schools and changing their mentalities because they're not teaching the students those sorts of things. I've spoken to several different schools, their business groups, and talked about non-competes and how they shouldn't sign them. And they're like, wow, well, we were told that this is just kind of commonplace. So that's where I've been trying to do some work 
at the you know the, the vet school level and just talking to future DVMs about how how we avoid these. I mean, I fought one. It was literally a power move by the by the business owner. One thing that I find is that they only go after the people that they feel threatened by when it comes to these non-competes. I was literally in another county, but I was 0.3 miles within my non-compete. And so clients weren't going to drive their dog from another county to come see me. So it, it's more of a power move thing, in my opinion. And so, you know, what I'm trying to make these students understand is that if you don't get into them, you don't have to waste the $10,000 on the stress of having to fight one. I mean, it was a freaking nightmare. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare having to fight that. When I hear that story about those non-competes, normally what people will say is, oh, well, that's not enforceable anyway, right? A hundred mile non-compete, it's not enforceable anyway, so don't worry about it. Here's the problem with that argument. To determine enforceability, you still have to get involved with the legal system. You've got to hire an attorney. You're going to go through all kinds of back and forth before you even get into a courtroom, if it gets into a courtroom. And by that time, you will have invested all kinds of money just to determine your non-competes non-enforceable. And that is what they bank on. They bank on the fact that even if they know it's not, think about mission veterinary partners. Okay, I don't know if you saw that post. I found contracts for new grads in California, which had non-competes in it. Completely unenforceable in that state, but guess what you still have to do? You still have to go to court to determine the enforceability. So that is what they bank on, all right? The fact that the average person, the average veterinarian isn't gonna go spend 10, 20, $30,000. I've got a veterinarian that I'm speaking to right now who is still, hasn't even made it to a court date and has spent over $100,000 on his legal defense just to determine the enforceability of his non-compete so that this veterinarian can continue to take care of animals. It is disgusting to me. Then you you take the chance that you get the quack-ass judge who actually enforces it. I mean, Bingo. you know what I mean? I mean, I, I think just even from some of the small court dealings that I've had recently, you can be within the law and just have a judge that doesn't know the law. I mean, and then if you want to appeal it, you're talking about, I mean, gosh. And so, so, so that's the point. You can't, you have to worry about enforceability for something that you don't sign in the first place. And that's where we have to empower veterinarians to be at the forefront of not signing these agreements and not, you know, not going through the enforceability part. Cause you know, I'm married to a judge. I want to, I feel like he does a pretty good job, but there's some quacks out there for sure. Well, and Dr. Stark, you're exactly right about the students, right? So that when I go to these schools, 100% of the time, the students will tell me that I am the first person to ever say what I said to them. And that's the shame, right? So, but it, it is, I think I'm really making a difference at the uh, student level. You know, I was just at Iowa State and I just I had an incredible opportunity to speak to so many of their students. And the best part about that talk, there was a bunch of employers in the room as well. And the contract example, <laughs> I was showing those students and the, the, the snippets from the contracts, they were from employers that were sitting in that room. And I didn't hold back, I let them know. And, but the good thing was, is that several private practice owners came up to me after I after that presentation was done, and they wanted to talk to me about how they could end their non-competes, several of them, all right? It was, hey, you know what? I never even, I didn't even think about it in this way, right? I, I, I never perceived it to have this kind of effect on my colleagues. Can we continue this conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and those, those are the folks that I'm working with now. 
Not a single corporate employer said a word to me, not a single one. And I'll tell you what, I made sure I made eye contact with them while I was talking. They were squirming. I think it's interesting, you know, when you say the corporate employers didn't have anything to say. And, you know, I see a lot of the content that you put out on LinkedIn where you tag them directly and it's crickets. And, uh, you know, we all saw the post from uh, probably about a week ago where BCA made that post about the, the veterinary visionaries where they were asking people to say, why are you in love with the veterinary industry? Or, you know, why did you fall out of love at, in, out of the veterinary industry? And the comments became flooded by people who worked in their hospitals currently or had previously worked in their hospitals and were giving them the feedback they asked for. And they started deleting comments and then they deleted the post. And yep. it's very interesting to me that the veterinary visionaries page only accepts video submissions. And I think they have done that very strategically because there are people, you know, people are less inclined to record themselves on a video and submit that than they would be to type an email and be like, this person did blah, 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 or I had this kind of experience. And so I think that they, you know, they've done that to try to Either they're so out of touch that they think they're going to get warm and fuzzy, like, I love that med, I love BCA, you know, videos, or they think that people that are upset are not going to take the time to record videos of themselves talking about the, the deficiencies that are happening in these hospitals and the poor treatment of the staff that is happening in these hospitals. So I recorded a video uh, and I submitted it to them and then I posted it on my socials. I didn't post it on LinkedIn, but I posted it on my other socials and encouraged all of my other vet med colleagues to do the same. And I'm hoping that they will. And I, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what AHA and these other companies do with the data that they receive. So two things really quick. So Paul, when you were saying that you were in the room and you were looking at the companies as you were talking, it reminded me of a saying, uh, the Sometimes the monkey has the gun. And so I feel like that's one of those situations. It's like we finally get the moment of empowerment and we finally are able to look at them and go in your face. But then number two, has the ABMA come out with a statement? I know that we, you know, sometimes I feel like their lack of leadership um, is, is deafening, but have they come out with a statement about non-competes? What is their position? We will be having Dr. Carlson. She will be joining us on a podcast episode. And it's one of the things that we, I will definitely put on the list to ask her as well. But have you heard anything from them on their position? Yeah, so of all the executives that I've tagged and that I've attempted to communicate with, um, Dr. Lori Teller is the only one that responded publicly. And because of that, she earned she earned my respect. And we had a, we had a conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation, a Zoom meeting. And I felt that it was a it was a great conversation. She was very candid and open, um, and she was receptive to what I had to say. Now we got to understand that Dr. Lori Teller is the public face of the ABMA, right? But the decisions of the ABMA happen, you know, behind the scenes in this this House of Delegates that I am unable to identify. But those folks are the ones that are making the decisions, obviously. And to answer your question, no. ABMA has been completely silent on the topic of non-competes. That has been an issue for me, um, and it's an issue that I've continued to point out. Don't get me wrong, I think the ABMA does great work, but I think that they can do better. If they missed the memo in 2016 that the American Medical Association put out when they 
took a stand against non-compete for human health care doctors. Well, they had a second chance at another memo in 2017 when the American Bar Association did the same thing for lawyers. And here we are in 2023, and some guy named Paul Diaz is the loudest advocate for ending the non-compete, more so than the ABMA. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Now, why is it happening? I don't know. I can speculate. I think uh, money really influences decisions. I'm just going to leave it at that. But the fact that the number one organization that is intended to advocate for veterinarians and veterinary professionals is silent on a topic that is so detrimental to that population, to me, it's just inexcusable. Now, one of the things I, I realized as I was going through all these employment contracts, right, because veterinarians send me their contracts all the time, and then I started realizing, well, it looks like every employer has a line in these contracts saying, we'll pay your ABMA dues. And then I started thinking, well, wait a second. So if the employers are paying them, would they have as many members as they had today if every individual veterinarian was paying for their own? Would, would the veterinarian say, hey, this is value? Like, I'm getting value from this, right? Well, the ABMA isn't saying a thing about non-compete, so why am I paying for this membership? I don't know. I don't know if their memberships would be the same. And then the other thing that concerns me about the ABMA is that those individual members who are paying that membership fee, they have no say in who the president of that organization is going to be, right? Why can't it be a majority vote of all the current members? Why do you need this House of Delegates to act as a uh, intermediary between some of the most intelligent humans on earth, veterinarians, right? Veterinary professionals. I think they can make a decision on who they want representing their interests. And that's what the ADMA is supposed to do, right? It represents the interests of that population. So I don't know. They're, they've been completely silent. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on over there. But in the next uh, next year or so, I think they're going to have to say something. But the worst part about this is the, the, the whole um, government getting involved. I think that was music to the AVMA's ears. Because if, the gov if they could just hold out right, and not say anything, and then the government forces it, then they look like, hey, you know what, employers? You don't have to stop setting your sponsorship dollars because we didn't do it. The government made it happen. And then they could just clean their hands of it and never have to come out with a statement. And that, I think, is going to be the worst thing they can do. Yeah, so I guess my question is, in the meantime, how do we hold them accountable? Is it through petitions? Is it through, I mean, I know there's a lot of people not wanting to, you know, to be a part of the AVMA. And so, and a lot of people are tied to them because of their insurance. I mean, I personally would like to not be a part of it, but my insurance kind of ties me to it. But what other ways, are, or, or are there any other ways that we can, I don't want it to just be you, Paul, like we're out here too, like we want to advocate as well you know, that we can hold the AVMA and other employers are accountable, not just the AVMA. It's not just strictly on them. Yeah, so Dr. Tyler shared a couple ways with me that veterinarians can, you know, inform the AVMA about topics that are important to them. Um, I know I, I put it on my post. It was in the Vet Candy article. I wrote, I wrote it out in there. Um, I, I just, off the top of my head, I can't remember the, the, the URLs to those links. But the AVMA has resources where, veterinarians can reach out to them and, and make them aware of, of topics that they feel are important to the industry. How effective is that? I don't, I really don't know. I mean, the veterinary population could tell me better than I can, but um, the thing is, is you know, I, I think it's just, it's a little late. It's, it's a little late. I mean, if the other two major advocacy organizations can do it back in the 
2016 and 17, and here we are in 2023. You just, I mean, what are you going to say about that? How are you going to defend, oh, we waited this long, and here's why? I just, you know, you can't tell me that that much research needs to go into this. If the FTC can make a proposed rule, and their research has only been going on for a few few years. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, and, you know, I have some people telling me that now that I got nominated for that award, they're like, you're never going to get it if you keep saying what you're saying. And I'm like, well, if that nomination means I can't say what I need to say, then I'm sorry, then I'm okay not winning. I'm okay with that. Well, that's ironic because it's the advocacy award. <laughs> so I get, I get nominated for the advocacy award, then all of a sudden just stop advocating. I guess whatever. So I know that you launched uh, your patent pending hiring process. And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So Offer First is, gosh, this has been a project I've been working on for over three years now. Um, I'm really excited to introduce everybody to it. Basically, my intent behind Offer First was to fix several of the problems with the traditional hiring process, one of which is that nobody has ever challenged the traditional hiring process. It's just been the same way because it's the only way, it's the only option we've ever had, right? So to me, I think the traditional process puts um, a lot of time and money at risk for both candidates and employers, where you as the skilled talent professional have to give up all your personal time up front for an unknown outcome. We engage with these employers and it may give you a compensation range, but we all know it's not accurate, right? We all know that um, you know, sometimes they give these broad ranges that are just completely unattainable. But the bottom line is, is that I have to you know, fill out the application, do all your phone calls, do all your interviews. Maybe I have to travel for your interview. And then at the very end, we're gonna find out if our values align. And if they don't, and I decline your offer, well, then we both have to start all over. And that to me is just an inefficient process. If the biggest barrier to acceptance, or if one of the biggest barriers to acceptance is the alignment of those values, well, let's figure that out. out let's figure that out first. And then I'm more likely to finish your process if I know that my value is respected. So that's kind of why I came up with offer first. And you know, I really do think it's going to fix a lot of the traditional problems that no other technology currently does, right? Most of the technologies that are available today are just different versions of the same thing. And most were created by people who had no recruiting experience whatsoever. So now we've got a tool created by somebody that does have that recruiting experience specifically to kind of level the playing field between employers and candidates, right? So for decades, this process has really put the, the employer in the driver's seat and the candidate just along for the ride, but now we're gonna even that out and enable uh, an empowerment of the job seeker. Um, besides that, you know, they say ghosting is one of the biggest problems in recruiting today in the recruiting industry. Well, offer first, I can guarantee there won't be there won't be any ghosting. Right? I can guarantee that. And a lot of people are like, well, how do you do that? I'm like, well, you'll have to wait to you have to wait till it launches to find out. I'm not giving away <laughs> all the secret sauce. But you know, the negotiating piece, that's another major problem that I see with the current traditional process. Number one, negotiating with your new boss can be uncomfortable, right? But negotiating from an emotional standpoint is even much more difficult because of where they place that stage in the traditional process. 
the employer is already taking you out to dinner. They've already told you how they want you to be their family. They've already wined and dined you, right? So now there's an emotional component going into those negotiations. And oftentimes what we find is that people will accept jobs because of that emotional influence for less than their true value. But with Offer First, you're gonna do it right from here. Right from your phone as the first step, we're gonna make sure our values align and it's gonna become a transactional process. A transactional process with no emotional influence and one that everybody is going to be able to just really use to their advantage, right? They're gonna be much more comfortable negotiating from a position where there is no emotional attachment whatsoever. Then the other benefit of that at least some of the feedback that I've gotten from people who've already used it, is that candidates are much more natural. The, the job seeker is much more natural in the interview process when compensation is completely off the table. And why is that? Well, because when compensation is still an unknown, I'm coming in there with the polished version of myself because I want to, I'm trying to impress you. Because in my mind, I believe if I impress you, I get a higher offer. Well, as the employer, we already know they know what they're going to pay you before you walk in the door, plus or minus a small percentage here and there, right? Now, the employer's benefit on that side of the house is that they get a much better fit assessment because they're really seeing the true personality of this individual instead of this polished version of them, right? So there's all kinds of other benefits. I do think it's going to change the way employers and candidates engage. And I think before long, you're going to hear um, job seekers telling employers, Hey, yeah, you know what? I'm interested, but find me on offer first because it's going to be their preferred way of finding a new job. I'm just laughing. That. Someone said that it was like Tinder <clears throat> for veterinarians. So, huh. well, Tinder works for dating. So, give me a break. <laughs> I don't know. T Tinder's right. kind of the cesspool. I, would, I wouldn't compare it with Tinder. Tinder's kind of the cesspool of the dating world. Maybe, maybe yeah. one of the better. Maybe like Hinge maybe or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> You know what? At least this way, you're going to know if your date is going to pay for the tab or ask you to split it up front. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I love that. I'm really excited to see, you know, where that goes and, and how it's going to revolutionize that part of the industry. Um, just to kind of wrap up, we want to know, and our listeners want to know, how can they support the work that you are doing? Ah, gosh, I appreciate that so much. Um, first of all, change.org slash and the veterinary non-compete. That's, that's my petition. If you haven't signed it, I would appreciate you going to that site, um, signing it and sharing it, you know, share it on social media to spread the word about that. So that's first and foremost. Um, if you know of any veterinarian struggling with a non-compete or a veterinarian that needs uh, assistance looking at a contract, they can connect them with me. Find me on LinkedIn, connect them with me somehow, and I'll be more than happy to do that. I do not charge veterinarians for any of the services I provide to them. And then lastly, Offer First, offerfirst.com forward slash early sign up. Go to that page, learn a little more about Offer First. You can sign up to be an early adopter, whether employer or candidate. So yeah, please, uh, if you're thinking about changing jobs or you know at some point in the future may need to look for a new job, sign up for Offer First. I promise you, it will change the way you, you uh, search for a job for the rest of your life. Um, and the other thing is, is that my platform, I believe we're the only one that offers a job seeker. Once you accept an offer on Offer First and you stay with that employer for 90 days, we'll send you a check for $500 just to thank you for using it. So there you have it. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. We really enjoyed chatting with you. All righty. Well, thank you all so much.